morning. Thank you all for coming out this morning. My name is Caitlin Lutz. I work at the Office of the Alumni Association. I plan education programs for alumni, parents, and friends of the university. And one of our programs is our fall football lecture series, which you are all part of this morning. This is the first in the series. This morning we're going to be hearing from Professor Larry Bartels regarding economic inequality in American democracy. Larry Bartels is a professor of politics and public affairs and the Donald E. Stokes Professor of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. He directs the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics in Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. Bartels has published numerous articles on electoral politics, public opinion, the mass media, and political methodology in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, and other leading scholarly journals and in a variety of edited volumes. His current research projects focus on the American electoral process, the political economy of inequality, and democratic theory. Bartel's first book, Presidential Primaries and the Dynamics of Public Choice, published by Princeton University Press in 1988, received the Woodrow Wilson Foundation Award for the year's best book on government, politics, or international affairs. He has been the recipient of major grants and fellowships from the Carnegie Corporation, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the National Science Foundation, the Pew Charitable Trust, the Russell Sage Foundation, and the Social Science Research Council. He was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1995. Bartels served as chair of the National Task Force that produced the volume Campaign Reform, Insights and Evidence, co-edited with Lynn Bassett <coughs> and published by Princeton, the University of Michigan Press in 2000. In 2001, he served as the pivotal nonpartisan member of the New Jersey Legislative Apportionment Commission and was a defendant in a major voting rights case, Page versus Bartels. He has also served as a chair of the Board of Overseers of the American National Election Studies, president of the Methodology Section of the American Political Science Association, and chair of the Princeton University Committee on Public Lectures, and on a variety of other departmental, university, and professional boards and committees. This morning is the first in our series. The next lecture will continue next week, which is Saturday, October 6th. That morning, we'll start at 11 o'clock in this room as well, and we'll be hearing from Professor Daphne Brooks, who is in both the English Department and the Center for African American Studies. So please join me in welcoming Professor Larry Bartels. Thank you all for coming out this morning. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. The timing is especially appropriate because uh, just this week I finished the final revisions on a book uh, which is going to be published on this subject next spring uh, by Princeton University Press. I've been working on the book for six years, so it's nice to finally have it done. Uh, it's only four or five hundred pages long, and I'm only going to hit the highlights, so you should be out in time for the second half of the game. The subject of the book is the relationship between economic inequality and the political process. This is a very old subject in political science. It goes back at least to Aristotle, who spent a good deal of time worrying about the relationship between wealth and uh, political systems, and indeed defined the distinction between oligarchy and democracy 
in terms of the relative political status of the property and unproperty classes. <coughs> where the possession of political power is due to the possession of economic power or wealth, whether the number of persons be large or small, that is oligarchy. And when the unproperty class have power, that is democracy. And so in a sense, the question that I want to address this morning is the question of whether contemporary America is a oligarchy or a democracy. It's also a very topical uh, question. Most of you probably know from following the newspaper that there's been a big change in the income distribution in the US over the past 30 years or so. This is just one recent press report on the latest update in the statistics with respect to the income gap between rich people and uh, the rest in the contemporary US. You can see the most interesting point here is that the gap in earnings between people at the top and uh, people in the bottom half of the income distribution has nearly doubled since 1980. Uh, the pattern of income growth in the last 30 years or so is dramatically different from what it had been in the first half of the post-war era. Uh, you can see here that from 1947 through the earlier mid-70s, uh, the level of income growth uh, for people across the income distribution was uh, quite similar. Uh, people at the 20th percentile of the income distribution, working poor people, uh, basically doubled their real incomes over that period. Uh, middle class people at the 40th and 60th percentile of the income distribution roughly doubled their income over that period. And affluent people at the 80th and close to the top at the 95th percentile of the income distribution roughly doubled their income over that period. But then beginning in the mid-70s, we entered a very different kind of economic regime in which, first of all, the rate of income growth uh, has been much slower than it was in the immediate post-war period. And secondly, you can see that there's a considerable disparity in the economic fortunes of people in different parts of the income distribution in this more recent period. Um, some economists have put together data from the IRS about what's happened to incomes at the very top of the income distribution. Uh, what I'm showing you here is the share of total income that's gone to people in the top 5% of the income distribution, which is the top solid line there and people in the top 1%, which is the dotted line on the bottom. These data go back further to the beginning of the income tax system uh, early in the 20th century. You can see the same rapid upturn in the share of income going to people at the top of the distribution since the 1970s. Indeed, looking back through time, you can see that the increase in inequality over the last 30 years or so has put us back in a situation that really looks quite similar to the situation in the 1920s before the Depression. So the change in the income distribution uh, in recent years really is a, a retrogression of historic scope. Now economists have studied that economic trend and they spent a good deal of time figuring out uh, the ways in which technological change and globalization and demographic shifts have all contributed to the accumulation of greater income growth at the top of the distribution. Um, I don't want to deny that those factors are important. I think 
external economic shocks have uh, made a big difference to the, the politics of inequality in the U.S. in the last 30 years. But the point I want to make here is that it seems to me that explanations that focus entirely on economic factors overlook uh, equally important political factors, and those are the ones that I want to focus on here, the impact of politics and public policy on the changing shape of the income distribution. One suggestion that that might be important is that those same external economic trends that have influenced the uh, income distribution in the U.S. have affected all of the other developed countries as well. And if we look across those countries at the trends in the income distribution, it turns out that uh, most of them have experienced much more modest increases in inequality than the U.S. has. Um, the market income distributions in many of those countries have shifted in much the same way that they have in the U.S., but the political system has responded with aggressive redistribution that has kept the shape of the income distribution more similar to what it had been before these economic shocks occurred, whereas in the U.S. there's been much less of that. Uh, Another way to look at the political uh, ramifications, the political causes of inequality, is simply to look at disparities in what's happened under Democratic and Republican presidents. There are consistent partisan differences in the priorities and policies of the two parties that reflect their traditional ideological commitments and the economic interests of their core constituencies. And the argument I want to make is that those policy choices have consistent and very significant effects on the shape of the income distribution. Here's a summary, a very simple summary, of what's happened to the economic fortunes of people in different parts of the income distribution under Democratic and Republican presidents. Again, you can see the data right along the income distribution from the working poor people near the bottom of the distribution to the very affluent people at the top of the distribution. What I've done here is simply to tabulate the average change in their real incomes under Democratic presidents, which is the solid line at the top, and Republican presidents, which is the dotted line at the bottom. And you can see the pattern here. Under Democratic presidents, income growth has been fairly consistent across the income distribution. People near the bottom of the distribution have done a little better, at least in percentage terms, than people at the top of the distribution. But basically, the level of economic inequality implied by those growth patterns at the top uh, is more or less constant. On the other hand, under Republican presidents, you see people at the top of the distribution have done about as well under Republicans as they have under Democrats. But the average income growth rate for middle class people has been about half under Republicans what it has been under Democrats over this half century. And the average income growth rate for working poor people has been about one-sixth uh, of what it was under Democratic presidents. So you see huge partisan differences in the patterns of income growth. And those effects, the political effects, mainly uh, apply to people in the middle class and the bottom of the distribution rather than people at the top. Just to give you some sense of the magnitude of the implications of those differences, the dotted line in the middle here is the inequality and how it's changed over the post-war era uh, as measured by the ratio of incomes at the 80th percentile of the distribution to the 20th percentile. So you can see that at the beginning of this period, affluent people had incomes about three times as large as working poor people. Uh, and that 
ratio increased pretty substantially beginning in the 1970s. That's the pattern we saw before. The line at the bottom, the diamonds here, uh, are the projections based on my analysis of what that trend would have looked like if the policies pursued by Democratic presidents had been in effect through the entire post-war period. And you see under those circumstances, the big run-up in inequality attributable to these economic trends, to technological change and globalization and all the rest, would essentially not have produced any change in the shape of the income distribution over the entire post-war period. Basically, you get a flat line there. On the other hand, if we had had Republican policies over the entire post-war period, you can see that the increase in inequality over that period would have been substantially larger than it actually was. Uh, when we get up to the top there at five and a half or six, that's the right level of inequality in banana republics, but it's getting pretty close to that level. So what accounts for those dramatic differences in patterns of income growth? Um, I want to suggest to you that one important source of the differences has to do with uh, partisan macroeconomic policies and the differences in macroeconomic performance that result from those differences in levels of unemployment and economic growth, for example. Secondly, there are significant partisan differences in tax policies, of which the Bush tax cuts in 2001 and 2003 are the most dramatic recent example. And finally, there are important partisan differences in social spending patterns and labor regulations and minimum wage laws. And I'll show you one example of that as well. So here's the record of macroeconomic performance under Republicans and Democrats over this half century. Uh, you can see that the average level of inflation is more or less the same under Democrats and Republicans, although Republicans certainly focus more on trying to combat inflation. They don't seem, on average, to have done all that much better than Democrats in terms of actually constraining it. You get a similar kind of pattern if you look at differences from year to year in inflation rather than the actual inflation rates. And you get a similar kind of pattern if you try and take account of historic trends in inflation, since uh, there are other reasons besides politics for the inflation rate to be higher or lower in particular periods. But basically, not much partisan difference there. On the other hand, with respect to unemployment, you see a very substantial difference in unemployment performance under Republican Democratic presidents. Uh, the average unemployment rate has been about 30% higher under Republicans. And you also see big differences in average levels of GDP growth, uh, much larger under Democratic presidents than under Republican presidents. How do those differences in macroeconomic policies contribute to the differences in income growth patterns that I showed you? Well, it turns out that uh, the incomes of middle class and especially poor people are much more sensitive than the incomes of affluent people are to the unemployment rate and to GMP growth. So when unemployment is high, people who suffer are disproportionately people at the bottom of the income distribution. That happens more under Republican presidents than it does under Democratic presidents. So these macroeconomic performance differences translate into the income differences that I showed you. Uh, also striking partisan differences in the realm of tax policy. If you think back to Bill Clinton's presidency, uh, Clinton was concerned about the budget deficit and raised taxes on rich people in order to reduce the deficit, but at the same time he expanded significantly the earned income tax credit for the working poor people. And so the progressivity of the tax system uh, increased pretty substantially under Clinton. 
his uh, policies were so successful in reducing the budget deficit that there was actually a considerable surplus by the time he left office. And President Bush uh, took advantage of that surplus to preside over huge tax uh, cuts in 2001 and 2003. For my purposes here, the most important feature of those cuts is that they were targeted very heavily at affluent people. Um, the reduction in the federal tax burden uh, was about 25% for people at the very top of the income distribution and uh, about 10% for everybody below the top 5% and indeed a good deal smaller than that for people at the bottom half of the income distribution. So a huge redistributive effect from tax policies in that case. Uh, if you look at public opinion about the tax cuts, you find uh, two kind of peculiar uh, features of it. One is that in spite of the multi-trillion dollar stakes, people seem not to have spent a lot of time thinking about whether they ought to be for or against this. So for example, in surveys conducted as much as three years after the 2001 tax cut was adopted, 40% of the public said they hadn't thought about whether they favored or opposed it. Among those people who did, uh, among those people who did uh, say whether they favored or opposed it, people who favored it outnumbered those who said they opposed it by uh, about two to one. And if you analyze where those opinions seem to have come from, they seem mostly have to do with people's views about their own tax burdens. So people who thought their own taxes were too high were very likely to support the tax cuts in spite of the fact that most of them weren't getting very much out of it. Even if you look at views about uh, the estate tax, people's views about the estate tax were strongly colored by their views about their own tax burdens in spite of the fact that 98 or 99 percent of them would never be subject to the estate tax. Uh, say a little bit about uh, the minimum wage. We talked about you know, what's happened for people at the top of the distribution, uh, what's happened for people at the bottom of the distribution, is that the real value of the minimum wage has declined by almost 45% since the 1960s. Uh, if you look at the pattern here, you can see two kind of very distinct regimes in the immediate post-war period and through the late 60s. There were steady increases in the real value of the minimum wage that more or less kept pace with increases in average hourly pay in the economy as a, as a whole, which is the, the top little dotted line there. But then beginning in the early 1970s, there's been a pretty consistent uh, decline in the real value of the minimum wage, even though after plateauing for a while, uh, average hourly pay has begun to increase pretty substantially again. Uh, here, the uh, pattern of public support is quite different. There's been overwhelming public support for minimum wage increases over this entire period. Nevertheless, the politicians have allowed the real value of the minimum wage to decline. Uh, if you analyze when that happened and try and come for why it happened, it turns out, I think, to be largely attributable to the declining membership and political power of labor unions. But it also has to do with significant partisan differences. And again, if you just tally what's happened under Democratic and Republican presidents, you can get some sense of this. In the 25 years in this post-war period in which Democrats have controlled the White House, the real value of the minimum wage has increased by a total of $4 per hour. Uh, in the 31 years in which Republicans have been in charge, the real value of the minimum wage has declined by about $2 in 2006, uh, the Democrats made the minimum wage a significant part of their midterm campaign platform. They uh, 
were swept into a very narrow majority in Congress on the strength of that issue, among others. Uh, they promised to implement a minimum wage increase. Uh, Nancy Pelosi promised that the House would vote on it within 24 hours of uh, the new congressional majority being seated. Um, they did. They weren't able to pass a minimum wage increase because the Republicans in the Senate installed it. Uh, they then proceeded to wrangle for several months and threw in a few billion dollars in tax breaks for small businesses and eventually came up with something that Congress and the President could agree on. Uh, that will raise the minimum wage from 515 per hour to 725 per hour uh, by 2009. When the increase takes full effect in 2009, the real value of the minimum wage will still be less than it was 50 years ago, in spite of the fact that average wages in the economy have increased very substantially over that period. And it's also important to note that because we have this system of setting the minimum wage in nominal dollars, unlike, for example, Social Security benefits, which increase automatically uh, to take account of inflation, uh, the moment that uh, last increase takes effect in 2009, the real value of the minimum wage will resume early. So the people at the top got their tax cuts, the minimum wage workers are falling along behind. So the political question here, or at least one of the interesting political questions, is why are so many people voting for Republicans? Republicans have won five of the last seven presidential elections, in spite of the fact that uh, so many people seem to be doing so much better under Democratic presidents than they do under Republican presidents. One Popular explanation for that pattern has to do with social issues and the rising importance of social issues in American politics. So uh, many of you may have seen a book that came out in connection with the 2004 election cycle by Thomas Frank called What's the Matter with Kansas? Frank says that Republicans have captured working class whites through the hallucinatory appeal of cultural wedge issues like government abortion. Uh, and some looking at that, it turns out not really to be the case. Uh, in fact, low-income voters are more reliably democratic than they used to be, and they attach less weight to social issues than more affluent voters do, and those more affluent voters tend to be socially liberal. So while it's true that there's been some increase in the weight that people attach to social issues over the last 20 years or so, uh, it doesn't seem as though that's a big contribution to Republicans' electoral success through this period. A second possible explanation is that Americans simply don't care much about inequality. That apparently doesn't uh, account for the uh, pattern either. Uh, for example, 85% of the public say that our society should do whatever is necessary to make sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed. If you took that statement seriously and thought about what it would apply in the way, imply in the way of social policy and social change, it's a pretty radical program. People, I think, don't really uh, mean that when they say it. Uh, but there is a lot of, at least, abstract general support for uh, egalitarian uh, values. The problem, I think, is that people often fail to connect those values to their specific policy preferences. So, for example, most of the people who think that the rich pay less than they should in taxes nevertheless supported the Bush tax cuts, and they want to repeal the estate tax by a ratio of about 2 to 1, in spite of the fact that the estate tax only impacts multimillionaires. So I think the problem is not so much with people's values, but with their understanding of the connection between values and public policy. A novel explanation that I want to suggest to you here is that the Republican success has 
uh, in significant part to do with partisan biases in economic accountability. Um, there's a strong pattern which political scientists have been analyzing for years in which voters reward or punish the incumbent party uh, depending upon how the economy is doing. Uh, that sounds like a kind of sensible thing to do in the post-Keynesian period. We have some notion that presidents are supposed to be managing the economy and contributing to our economic fortunes. And so if they do that well, we want to reward them. If they do it badly, we want to punish them and replace them with some new team that might be more competent or more efficient. Uh, all that sounds very sensible. But all the analyses that people have done of this focus only on income growth in the presidential election year rather than income growth over the entire period in office. It turns out that the reason they do that is that if you look at the relationship between income growth over the incumbent's entire period in office and the election outcome, the result turns out, the connection turns out to be much weaker than if you focus only on what happened in the election year. So people seem to be quite short-sighted in terms of evaluating economic performance by looking at what's happening now and forgetting what's happened in the past. Why is that politically consequential? Well, because middle class and working poor people, although they've done much better under Democrats on average in those pictures that I showed you before, it turns out that they've done better under Republicans in presidential election years. So on the left here is the first picture that I showed you, the overall record of income growth under Republicans and Democrats. And on the right is what the same pattern looks like in presidential election years. You can see the same kind of class differentiation under the two parties in election years as at other times. So for example, people at the top of the income distribution do a lot better than working class and poor people under Republican presidents in election years as they do at other times. But the relative position of these two curves has flipped completely between election years and non-election years. And so to the extent that people are voting on the basis of how things are going at election time, and especially they seem to be uh, sensitive to how things are going at election time for rich people, where you see the disparity between the Republican record and the Democratic record is even starker. Um, to the extent that they're paying attention to that rather than to what's happened over the incumbent's entire period in office, uh, they're more likely to vote for Republicans in spite of the fact that on average they do much better under Democrats. And so I think this pattern has largely to do with this kind of quirk in the political psychology of the voters. How does this pattern arise? It seems very peculiar. I think it has to do in large part with the natural cycle of policymaking in the American political process. So a new president comes in uh, and is at the peak of his political influence. There's a honeymoon period uh, in which it's possible to accomplish a good deal in the way of policy. When Democratic presidents come in, they take advantage of that period to adopt very expansionary policies, the income uh, growth and economic growth boom during the second year of the incumbent's administration, which is the first year that the incumbent's policies uh, can be expected to take effect. And then that growth kind of dissipates over the third and fourth year. And by the time you get to the election year, uh, income growth tends to be quite modest, but from a higher level than it would have been otherwise. Under Republican presidents, the typical pattern is the reverse. If you look at the income growth under Republican presidents in year two, which again is the first year that their new honeymoon policies are taking effect, um, you see very low levels of growth and especially negative average growth for middle class and poor people. So uh, it's pretty uh, safe to predict a recession in the beginning of a new Republican administration. 
But then in the third and fourth year, the economy is growing out of that uh, trough and income growth looks pretty good by the time the election year comes around. The voters remember that, but they don't remember what happened earlier on. This would not have been a surprise to a very clever foreign observer of American politics more than a century ago. Of all the races in an advanced stage of civilization, the American is the least accessible to long views. Always and everywhere in a hurry to get rich, he does not give a thought to remote consequences. He sees only present advantages. He does not remember, he does not feel, he lives in a materialist dream. So is contemporary America a democracy in Aristotle's terms? Um, another famous formulation of the same question was by the contemporary political scientist Robert Dahl, uh, almost a half century ago now. In the first sentence of a classic book, Dahl asked, in a political system where nearly every adult may vote, but where knowledge, wealth, social position, access to officials, and other resources are unequally distributed, who actually governs? It's odd that political scientists have had very little to say about that. Over the years, there have been dozens of studies documenting disparities in political participation. So for example, in the relative turnout rates of rich people and poor people, because we have data about that, it's pretty easy to tell which people are turning out and what the class differences turn out to be. But there are virtually no studies that make a serious effort to examine disparities in actual political influence, because political influence is much more difficult to measure, and so we think know remarkably little about who governs. An important exception to that pattern is the work of Marty Gillins in the politics department here at Princeton, who's done a major study of policy shifts and tried to figure out whether policy shifts are more likely to reflect the preferences of affluent people or middle class or poor people. And he finds that influence over actual policy outcomes appears to be reserved almost exclusively for those at the top of the income distribution. According to Gillen's representational biases of this magnitude call into question the very democratic character of our society. I've done some work along similar lines, but with a different kind of research design, looking at the behavior of individual US senators and trying to relate that behavior to the of their constituents, but differentiating again between uh, affluent and middle class and poor constituents. And it turns out when you do that kind of analysis that the senator's voting behavior across a whole range of issues uh, turns out to be pretty sensitive to the views of affluent constituents and uh, to some extent to middle class constituents at all, but the views of people in the bottom third of the income distribution have no apparent impact on the senator's voting behavior. So here's the pattern results for three different Congresses that I looked at. And the bars here are measuring the responsiveness of the senator's votes to the views of people in the lower, middle, and upper thirds of the income distribution. You can see that there's um, some impact of middle income preferences and a greater impact of upper income preferences, but no impact at all on the views of people in the bottom third of the income distribution. Um, Republicans seem to be especially sensitive to the views of affluent constituents, but even Democrats apparently are unresponsive to people in the bottom third of the income distribution. So here's the pattern separately for Democratic and Republican senators. You see under Democrats, middle and high income people get roughly equal levels of responsiveness. Under Republicans, the people on the top of the distribution get about twice or three times as much responsiveness as people in the middle do. But again, people in the bottom third of the income distribution are apparently being entirely ignored here, uh, not only by Republicans, but also by Democrats. 
Do these findings imply that poor people are politically powerless? Well, not quite. Uh, in order to explain why that is, what I've done here is to show you the relationship between constituency opinion in the states, ranging from the most liberal states to the most conservative states, and the pattern of senators' votes in terms of the liberalism or conservatism of their roll call votes on all the issues that come before our Congress over a two-year period, from the most liberal down at the bottom to the most conservative up at the top. And you can see that within the two groups of senators, the Republicans were the open circles, the more conservative ones, and the Democrats were the black diamonds. Within each of those groups, there's a positive relationship between constituency opinion and the senator's behavior. So it is the case that um, a senator representing a very liberal state is going to be more liberal in his voting behavior than a senator who represents a more conservative state. But that difference is relatively small by comparison with the difference between the two parties, even when they're representing constituents with similar views. And because this is the Senate, we actually have a fair number of cases here in which we have a Democrat and a Republican representing exactly the same constituents because they come from the same state. And the disparity in behavior between the Democrat and the Republican representing exactly the same constituents is a good deal larger than the difference between, say, a Democrat representing the most liberal public and a Democrat representing the most conservative public. So there is some responsiveness to the specific views of voters, but it's swamped by the effects of the ideological uh, views of the political elites themselves. And so the most important thing in terms of accounting for how policy is going to turn out is whether the people who are in charge are Democrats or Republicans. And of course, poor people, like other people, can contribute to the choice between a Democrat or a Republican uh, in the ballot. So is no direct impact of uh, poor people's views on policymaking in this story, uh, but there's a substantial indirect effect insofar as their votes are decisive in making the difference between whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. And so this brings us back to the issue of partisan politics. People of modest means usually fare relatively well under Democrats, but much less well under Republicans, regardless of their own specific views or specific patterns of responsiveness on the part of elected officials. Insofar as poor people's votes are decisive in the electoral arena, they'll be politically influential. But given their numbers, if nothing else, uh, the circumstances in which their political views are going to be decisive are probably going to be relatively constrained. And so more often, I think the political fate of the poor will depend on the ideological sympathy of the non-poor. I think, unfortunately, the increasing social isolation of rich and poor people in contemporary America and the extent to which economic inequality is exacerbated by racial and ethnic divisions makes ideological sympathy for the poor less powerful than it might otherwise be. Uh, this came home to me when I saw the reviews, the kind of critical reaction to uh, a book that some of you may have read or heard about called Nickel and Dime by a reporter who spent a few months going around and working at a series of minimum wage jobs. And she wrote this book about what that was like. And the uh, middle and upper class reviewers who uh, reviewed this book for magazines and newspapers were shocked and surprised. This is revelatory. It's amazing. Um, these people apparently hadn't occurred to them that uh, minimum wage workers have, have hard work hard and uh, suffer a lot of petty abuses from their employers and from their uh, customers. 
it seems hard for me to believe that the parents or grandparents of those reviewers would have been so surprised to hear about what life is actually like for people uh, in the bottom part of the income distribution. But they're the people who are reading the New York Times Magazine, which every once in a while, as it did uh, a few months ago, has an issue about economic inequality as a problem with very lengthy articles about globalization and John Edwards' poverty platform and the like. And the articles are kind of squeezed in between advertisements for investment brokers and flights to the Cayman Islands and $10 million apartments in the uh, So maybe it's only in remarkable emergencies that people are likely to be reminded that we're tied together in this life in this nation and that the despair of any touches us all. I don't know how many of you recognize this quotation. Uh, this is what the speech that President Bush gave in Jackson Square in New Orleans when he turned up a couple of weeks after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, as it turned out, even that remarkable emergency didn't uh, suffice to make a significant dent in people's attitudes about inequality or public policy relating to inequality. Uh, you can see that in the large scale by looking at overall levels of pattern. You can see it in the small scale as well by looking at the actual uh, responses on the ground to Katrina. I suspect that many of you have seen newspaper accounts from the disparities of uh, the rate of rebuilding in wealthier and less wealthy neighborhoods and the number of people who aren't getting any federal help because they're not homeowners, they were renters, and there's no reason for the landlords to rebuild those rental units. And so uh, I think the latest figure I saw was 15,000 people are still kind of in exile in other parts of the country because there's nothing for them to come back to. Um, that's a kind of striking and unhappy picture, but I think in a way it's indicative of the more general pattern of policymaking in the US over the entire post-war period. So are we a democracy? Uh, I guess we can at least uh, claim to be a democracy, since that makes us feel better than we're a democracy at all. We're a very unequal democracy. Thank you.
Um, but I think one big problem is people aren't going to support any, I don't think America really going to support any company distribution. A lot of people I know here at Princeton that went to school with the majority, it's like, oh, like, if you work for it, you deserve it. And there's other people who don't have it, they're poor. That's because I mean, they deserve it in that position. And so, so I, don't, I don't think that this, like, the solution can be on changing facts of their income distribution. It's going to be this kind of have a fundamental shift in how we think about how we think about what we think people deserve as far as Desegregation, 
then people no longer had, twice in particular, no longer had the same level of support for public facilities of all sorts, from schools to parks to anything else. Uh, they created quite flight. They went out to put private schools and so on, and there was no longer that, that commitment to the common good, even though it was a, say, in the Eisenhower administration, it was a segregated public good. But the idea was taxes benefited you and, and your community, and now you didn't want to benefit everybody else. Do you think that there's been an overall, in a sense, a, a paradigm shift that has changed the landscape and in that way uh, reduced the, the willingness of people to uh, pay taxes, which obviously has been exacerbated by you know, Republican uh, uh, campaigners. I think that is an important part of what's going on. If you look cross-nationally at patterns of redistribution and social spending, it turns out generally that the societies that are most ethnically heterogeneous are the ones that tend to spend least on social programs and redistribution. The ones that are most homogeneous are the ones where the political support for that kind of spending seems to held up best. Um, it's interesting, I think, on a subjective level, this impression that the tax money is going to people who aren't like me is an important consideration in people's political views. The reality, though, is that the uh, federal income tax as a share of GDP has really been quite constant. There was a big upturn in World War II and just after World War II, but since the 1950s, the share of GDP that uh, is going to federal income taxes has really been pretty constant. And so what's happened is that there's been an increase in people's overall tax burden, but it's come almost entirely from payroll taxes, which go for Social Security, which people say they want and increases in state and local taxes, which go for the segregated, economically at least, segregated schools and services um, that they say they want as well. So there's a kind of mismatch between the pressure that they feel as taxpayers and their sense that it's going for these programs and people that they're not very sympathetic to, and on the other hand, the reality of where the money is actually going. So I think that's contributed to the politics of this. But Again, I want to say that in spite of these long-term trends that make inequality easier or harder to produce or to alleviate in particular periods, the differences that you see between Democrats and Republicans are really quite consistent over time. If you just go administration by administration through the entire post-war period, that ratio that I showed you of the incomes of the 80th percentile to incomes of the 20th percentile um, increase, that is inequality increase under every Republican president in that era and decrease under every Democratic president, including Bill Clinton, who uh, was in office during this period where it was lots of external pressures increasing inequality. Increased, inequality decreased under Clinton and under every Democratic president except Jimmy Carter, who presided during a big oil shock and big recession. So it's quite a consistent pattern in spite of these historical trends. The, um, this would change if um, the electorate voted in their own self-interest uh, from a you know, very studied uh, basis. Do you see anything that might encourage the electorate to do that, particularly the middle class and the low middle class? Uh, I'm not hopeful, but maybe if they all read my book, they will. <laughs> <laughs> 
history, there was a huge difference. And what changed that? Was it world catastrophe, the depression, world wars? Is that the only thing that will really will make people wake up? Is that what we're seeing from this historical? Well, at least in U.S. history, we have two kind of big instances to look at. One is that the first Gilded Age in the late 19th century ended mostly because of a big depression in the 1890s, and then the progressive movement is a kind of political response to that and a kind of codification of people's concerns about the changing industrial economy and the rise of the Rockefellers and the Robert Barons and so on. So that's one kind of paradigm. The other is that the Roaring Twenties, the other period of high levels of inequality that were in the picture that I showed you there, ended with the Depression. So if we take those two instances as kind of the examples of how this works, um, probably it takes a big social dislocation of some kind. Yes? Do, do you think it, it is uh, somewhat inevitable that uh, well-to-do elements of society are going to have more influence on policy decisions because they've got more money, can make more contributions, they have uh, frequently a better understanding of how the uh, centers of powers work and how to pull the levers, uh, they have more time to spend on it, uh, or do you think that some of that can be offset to any significant degree by uh, organization? Uh, because pol politicians from my perspective, react to two things, uh, money, contributions, and large numbers of people. When I saw these patterns that I showed you about the levels of responsiveness of people in different parts of the income distribution, I set out to try and figure out what mechanisms accounted for those disparities. And so I went back to the data that were broken up by different income groups and re-weighted people on the basis of disparities in a variety of different kinds of political resources. So we had information about which ones said they voted in the election, and so I looked at the views of voters by comparison with non-voters to see which mattered more. Um, there are measures of political information and knowledge in these surveys, and so I distinguished between the people who were better informed and the people who were less well informed. Um, there were reports of whether they had ever contacted the senators or members of the senator's staff to complain about something or to express a policy view, and so I weighted their preferences by whether they had reported any kind of contact or not, and included all those differences in the analysis. Um, for the most part, they didn't work very well in accounting for these disparities in responsiveness. The one that seemed to have a significant effect was the differences in contacting. So part of the advantage of the wealthier people seemed to have to do with the fact that they were more likely to be in touch with public officials and be expressing their views directly about policy to those people. Um, but for example, differences in turnout seem not to have any impact on the weight that different people's views got in the senator's voting behavior, which struck me as being very surprising. And even after taking account of those differences, the disparity that I found between the responsiveness to the rich and responsiveness to the poor was almost as large as in the original pattern that I showed you. So something else seems to be accounting for this. What is it? Um, one possibility which you mentioned, but which we can't get out of the kinds of data that we happen to have now, is that it's the role of money in campaign contributions. Certainly the vast bulk of campaign contributions come from people in that top third of the income distribution, virtually none from people in the bottom third. And so 
roughly the data are consistent with the idea that what the senators are responding to mostly is not the views of people, but the views of money. I think that's an important part of what's going on, but I don't have a way to get at uh, precisely how important it is. The other possibility that I think is important and we're thinking about is that although I'm looking here at the relationship between constituents' views and senators' behavior, that relationship may arise for reasons that don't have to do directly with the responsiveness of the senators to the views of the constituents. So for example, you might imagine that the senators are simply casting every vote on the basis of what they themselves think is right. And it just so happens that if they come from wealthy backgrounds, they're more likely to have views that are consistent with the views of their wealthy constituents than with their middle-class and poor constituents. One of the important social changes in politics over the last half century, I think, is that it's become much less common for middle class and especially lower class people to get involved in politics and to rise through the hierarchy into positions of political influence. One of my students is elaborating the data analysis that I did for this study of responsiveness and went back for all these senators gathered information not only about things like their campaign contributions but also about their family backgrounds, what their father's occupations were, whether they went to public schools or private schools. And his analysis is at a very preliminary state, but it suggests that much of this difference in responsiveness may have to do with their own backgrounds and affinities. So for example, people who went to private schools seem to be a good deal more responsive to affluent preferences than the people who went to public schools. So some of this may have to do with the sociology of political recruitment as much as with the differences in resources of people at the moment that the study is actually being done. Sir. Uh, professor, assuming that the next president will be a Democrat, seems to be the assumption at the moment, if all the Democratic candidates knew had a meeting two hours from now, and they said, you know, we agree with you entirely, Professor Bartels, we're concerned about what you have pointed out. Uh, we're going to have some time, perhaps the next four years, in which we're going to be in the ascendancy, for reasons which may have less to do with uh, the major uh, point of your thesis than the feelings uh, in the electorate concerning our foreign policy, and more specifically Iraq. But we're going to be in the ascendancy. How do we, what would be the most effective thing to, from what you have uh, discerned through your studies uh, to change this picture uh, of increasing inequality uh, and this uh, tendency towards oligarchy in our democracy. How, how if, if we're in control, how do we begin to get back to uh, the chart that looks more like the 40s and 50s? Uh, let's see. I guess the first thing I want to say is that I think it's more likely than not that a Democrat will get elected, uh, but I certainly wouldn't make it an assumption. Uh, I, I want you to apply that assumption. Yeah, I understand. Uh, there are really very modest differences in policy proposals and impulses among the various Democratic candidates. For example, if you look at what they say and want to do about the Bush tax cuts, there are very modest differences in their proposals. Um, and the score of health care, there are very modest differences in their proposals. And so I think the picture is really consistent with this notion that the difference between a Democrat and a Republican is much more important than the details of which particular Democrat or which particular Republican Get. One of the things I would encourage them to do is what Democrats typically do since the historical record is that 
that's likely to make an important difference at the margin. I think it's important to recognize that they're operating under circumstances that make traditional democratic impulses more difficult to carry out than they had been in the past. And so just pretending that we're back in the 1960s, I think, is not going to be a very useful solution. They do have to worry about the uh, implications of their policies for the bond markets and for the global economy and so on. So I think it's important to not think that uh, just standard policies are going to be enough, but I think standard policies are going to make a big difference uh, on the minimum wage. I think they're going to make a big difference on health care. I think they're going to make a big difference on uh, the way unions are treated and the way employment regulations change the balance of power between employers and employees. The long-term issue here, I think, has to do with um, getting people to be concerned not only about the policies of the moment, but also about the process and the long-term issues having to do with education and such. That's a harder thing to accomplish, but I think that's what I hope uh, a Democratic president would invest some political capital in, in this relatively short period at the beginning of the administration when there's uh, relatively more room uh, for action. I have to say, though, that all of this is difficult given the complexities of the American political system and the opportunities that are available for people who like the status quo to avoid change. So um, assuming that your new Democratic president doesn't have 60 seats in the Senate, which seems very unlikely, uh, he or she is going to have to deal constantly with the threats of Republican filibusters and is going to have to negotiate with moderate Republicans in order to get anything done. Um, President Bush in 2001 avoided that difficulty in significant part by acceding to congressional procedures that made it possible to act on the basis of a bare majority rather than a 60 vote majority. But the trade-off for that was that the policies that were adopted were, in most cases, uh, scheduled to disappear after a decade because these procedures could only be used to affect policy choices for a decade. And so now we're at the point where the trade-off between short-term and long-term uh, that Bush made are coming home to roost for Republicans. They're having to deal with the fact that the tax cuts aren't likely to be around in anything like their current state uh, after 2010. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you can make significant changes in policy for a decade and then worry about whether they're going to remain or disappear, that may be a good trade-off. And so one of the things that a Democratic president might consider doing is adopting a strategy, something like Bush's, of trying to push as aggressively as possible, even with a very narrow majority, to implement significant policy changes, knowing that they may disappear in the future. The other long-term issue here that any president, Republican or Democrat, is going to have to deal with is the looming budgetary crisis that has to do with Social Security and Medicare and the demographic changes. And that's been entirely punted for such a long time now that I think it's going to greatly constrain the options that are open to any president to deal with all the other things that he or she might want to do. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, um, regarding the uh, Americans' uh, dislike of thinking in long term compared to other countries, what, what can we do about that? Why do other countries like to think in long term solutions more than we do? I mean, you can't prescribe memory pills for everybody, so what do you do about it? Uh, 
I'm not sure that the difference between long-term and short-term is really a national difference, although I like that quote that I showed you at the end from Ostrogorsky. I'm not sure that Americans are really much different from people in other places uh, in that respect. There is a pattern that Americans are more sensitive to economic conditions at the time of the election than people in other parts of the world are, in part because in other parts of the world there's usually a much more complicated chain of responsibility. There may be a coalition government and it's hard to apportion responsibility uh, among the different members of the coalition. In many countries that are smaller than the U.S., people have a better understanding of the extent to which economic conditions are imposed from outside rather than generated by the policy choices of the elected officials. So I think there are differences of that kind as well. But the other thing to say about this is that this psychological quirk on the part of American voters would not be politically consequential. Voters behave in all kinds of wacky ways that don't have a great impact on their political interests and on the kind of trends in the political system. This one happens to matter because of the peculiar policy cycle of the Republicans and Democrats, which produces a big partisan advantage for Republicans as a result of the short-sightedness. Which Democrat candidate do you think would be the best job in the issue of economic inequality? Uh, well, the person who's talked about it loudest and longest is John Edwards. But as I said a moment ago, it seems to me that the most important thing to notice is that the differences among the various Democratic candidates are really pretty modest by comparison with the differences between any Democrat and any Republican. So I think the, whatever you can discern about the competence of the candidates and their commitment to actually pushing for these kinds of policies is going to be more important than differences in the details on page 10 of their health care plan. Yes. Um, the stereotype is that uh, Americans start out, uh, some of them, not all of them, start out being liberal when they're young and as they get more successful and more rich, they turn more conservative when they're old. Does that really happen? Is that really a large percentage? Does it have any uh, influence on all this you've been talking about or is it just a myth? Uh, I think it's largely a myth. It's a kind of illusion of the fact that a lot of these first studies of patterns in partisanship and electoral support were done in a period where the relatively young people were socialized during the New Deal and therefore were quite democratic, whereas the older people were socialized in earlier years when the Republicans uh, were the dominant party and so were more Republican in their views. If you look in uh, the post-Reagan period, for example, you see that the young people during that period were disproportionately Republican in their sympathies, and the older people were more democratic in their views. Now we're in a period again where the Republican support has begun to erode in the population as a whole, and again, that pattern is most pronounced among younger people who don't have any very well-established political histories, and so are basing their judgments largely on what they see around them in the newspapers or on websites and blogs. Um, rather than on long periods of political history. So the very newest generation, again, looks much more democratic than the people who are a little bit older than they are. But I think that has more to do with the politics of the time in which they're socialized than it does with any general pattern uh, having to do with changes in people's life cycles. Thank you very much.